our hosts for the evening. First is Julia Turner, Slate's deputy editor. She edits columns on advertising, fashion, culture, media, transportation, and design, and writes regularly for the magazine about design. To her left is uh, Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic. Previously, she wrote a Slate column on television and popular culture. She has also written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Book Forum, and The Washington Post. And to her left is Stephen Metcalf, Slate's critic at large. He's written for New York Magazine, New York Times Magazine, The New Republic, and The New York Observer, and is working on a book about the 1980s. Please welcome our hosts tonight. Um, it, first of all, I want to clarify, uh, Dana Stevens is Slate's film critic, not movie critic. <laughs> <laughs> Got to start weird. Um, uh, second of all, there's already a pocket of derisory laughter over there. <laughs> that guy. Um, uh, and then third of all, Andy sort of heavily implied that there's drinking before we do something like this. Uh, and I, I'm not going to go on the record either way on that issue, but I will say, uh, if you knew what it took for me to get Dana out of that 1970 Lancia and, <laughs> and up on stage. Anyway, I look out at this crowd. This is really remarkable. Um, when I look out there, I think, happy Hunger Games. <laughs> and, and when I look up here, I think, welcome to the final rose ceremony. <laughs> Dana, it was you who taught me how to pronounce quinoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and how to live it. Um, there's a note here, it says, warm up crowd, question mark. <laughs> and so far I've done justice to the question mark. Um, I would feel a whole hell of a lot better uh, and more comfortable warming you up if I had any idea who the fuck you people were. Um, I, this is my fourth day in my life in Los Angeles, so I just want to ask you a couple of totally innocent questions. Uh, the first is, uh, how many of you are in the movie or television industry? Okay. And uh, Wait, how many... Actually, hold on. Interruption. Uh, this is a radio show, so <laughs> raising your hands doesn't work. And in fact, you should make a lot of noise throughout the whole process okay. tonight. So, cheer so do it again. All right. Wait, 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 ready? Ready? Okay. So I just have a couple of innocent questions. <laughs> uh, how many of you are in the movie or a television industry? They, they sound louder than they look. Okay, and, and how many of you have had your work product ragged upon by one of the three of us on stage here? <laughs> <laughs> that guy. Sir, could you stand up? <laughs> no. are, are you warm? <laughs> All right, I just want to make clear I'm absolutely frickin' terrified right now, but let's do this. Are we ready? You guys so. ready? All right. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest live in Los Angeles edition. I'm now going to tell you the first uh, lie of the evening. It's Wednesday, March 21st, 2012. <laughs> On today's program, the Mike Daisy debacle, or debacle at This American Life, 
The Zoe Deschanel-ness of, I'm mispronouncing it, of Zoe Deschanel, uh, on display in her new TV sitcom, New Girl. And finally, we're joined miraculously, surprisingly, completely, we're incredulous, in fact, by a real live uh, movie star, Elizabeth Banks, to talk about her role in the new movie, The Hunger Games, which we saw, all saw at a screening um, on, uh, on Monday, I guess it is, and we're enormously relieved. Not only did we love it, we loved her in it, so the suck-up is completely sincere, <laughs> um, motivated. All right, let's dive, let's dive right in. Uh, the Agony and the Ecstasy of, jo of Steve Jobs was a one-man show written by and starring Mike Daisy at the Public Theater in New York City. Its run happened to coincide with the death of Steve Jobs. Uh, that made it an enormous cause celeb. I think it would have been a huge success either way. It was uh, very topical and very urgent in that topicality. It's a theater piece designed to make the audience feel something about the, feel something about the fact that our stuff is now made in China. So said Ira Glass, host of the public radio show This American Life, by way of explaining why Glass asked Daisy to adapt uh, his theater piece to the radio. Daisy's adaptation cut away the half of the theater monologue in which he discusses jobs and kept the half in which he, Daisy, describes his own trip to China, specifically to Shenzhen and more specifically to a gigantic factory complex known as Foxconn. It's a single company, as I can picture it having listened to the Daisy thing, it's like a massive, I mean campus is probably way too noble a word to describe it, but we're talking about a huge factory-like entity that employs 430,000 workers. The This American Life episode was broadcast this past January. It's since become the single most downloaded episode in the history of that program. And as someone who's desperately, desperately trying to grow a podcast audience and looks forlornly every week at what the number one show is <laughs> in iTunes, that is a remarkable fact. A lot of people listen to it. This is a long run-up, but you'll see why. In this past week's episode of This American Life, Ira Glass was forced to admit that the most powerful moments in the monologue appear to have never happened, and quote, we never should have broadcast this story. It turns out Mike Daisy's monologue may have only one virtue. Unlike the iPad, it was mostly fabricated in America. <laughs> Glass was forced to broadcast what amounted to an hour-long retraction of the, uh, 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 and uh, explication of the errors and falsehoods in Daisy's account. How many people in this room heard some of all of this? So that run-up was totally redundant. <laughs> anyway, I still think you can't, get the you can't get the flavor of what Mike Daisy was doing and what it means that it was false without hearing a clip from the show. So if I've given Andy Bowers enough lead time here, Andy, if we could listen to clip number one. And so my plan is to take this taxi to the main gate, and then I'm going to get out of the taxi with my translator, and then my plan is to stand at the main gate and talk to anybody who wants to talk to me. <laughs> and when I tell journalists in Hong Kong about my plan, they say, that's different. That's not really how we usually do things in China. That's, um, it's really a bad idea. That's really a bad idea. 
All right, Julia, let's dig, let's dig right into this. Uh, I, uh, we have a gag order on one another uh, leading up to a show, even in a regular week. We did that again this week. I, you are an editor. You're a great editor. Uh, you're constantly, I would imagine, balancing some abstract fealty to a notion of the truth uh, against the very real need to tell a captivating story. Uh, what did you make of this? What did you make of the fact that Mike Daisy appears to have fabricated quite a lot of what he uh, told us about uh, Shenzhen, Foxconn, and Apple Computer? Uh, out of whole cloth? Well, my initial response was to be pretty startled by the seriousness of this American Life's handling of it. Not that I don't trust them as journalists, but I think that's a show that I think of as a show that's about storytelling, that straddles a line somewhere between straight journalism of the sort that you hear on Morning Edition or All Things Considered and, you know, pure fiction. And you know they they run monologues by David Sedaris, who's been similarly subjected to fact checking. And he says, of course, you know I told a story in which my, you know, mom's cat came back to life and talked to me. Like obviously that story is not 100% factually true. Um, so the, so it's a show that has shown a willingness to be experimental and playful in its notions of storytelling in the past. And then with regard to this show, they've given it the full, you know, 360, super rigorous and super well executed, I think, journalist fact check. And it was, in a way, the fact check episode was almost as riveting as the initial episode because of sort of the reporting that they did uh, that went into exposing the falsehoods in Daisy's work. And then this confrontational interview that lay at the heart of it between Ira Glass, the host of the show, and Mike Daisy, in which Ira confronts Mike Daisy and says, you lied to me, why, and sort of mm -hmm. forces him to fess up to it. Um, so initially I thought, you know, is it okay, is it all right? I mean, and Daisy ends up coming up with a, a defense saying, I'm allowed to stretch the truth, I'm a monologuist, I'm in the theater, I'm playing by the rules of the theater, it was a mistake to let it on your show. Um, but in the end, I, I feel that he still messed up and he, he the thing that, that bothered me the most about it was that he was, I mean, the, the logic, I guess, that, that got to me is that on the one hand, you could say, well, David Sedaris is just talking about his family, so it's okay if he fudges the truth. It doesn't affect anybody. And Mike Daisy is talking about what was briefly this past year the most profitable, most valuable corporation in the entire world, so it matters if he gets those facts wrong. Mm -hmm. But the places that he fudges in the middle are about the lives of these Chinese workers that he professes to care about and professes to want to make us care about. And the fact that he's willing to play fast and loose with the facts of their lives really rubbed me the wrong way. Right. So I think, uh, Dana, that Julia's really hit upon uh, one of the central and critical issues of this episode, that there, it, part of the problem is there's a newish genre called storytelling or sometimes called monologuing. It's sort of the world that's swimming to Cambodia has wrought, right? And in its wake came David Sedaris, the moth has become huge. Um, uh, other examples are, uh, did I say David Sedaris? <laughs> did I say them? <laughs> there's, there's another example, there really is, um, in there somewhere. But, uh, and it's, as a new genre, it's genre conventions aren't uh, stable, and most pointedly conventions regarding what uh, counts as the truth and what counts as an embellishment. Uh, where are your ethical lines drawn and do they cross with your aesthetic lines? If you're titillated or thrilled by the way someone tells a story at a dinner party, you don't 
you don't fact check them, you don't nail them down on it. If someone in a formal setting with some kind of a proscenium, you know, implied or otherwise, is uh, uh, presenting themselves as a truth teller, does it completely undermine what they've done if it turns out later what they told wasn't the truth? Right, yeah. It seems like part of the problem is that the, the intersection between the show This American Life and what Mike Daisy does and what that kind of Spalding Gray style stage monologue does there's not, a, there's not a very clear congruence. He's, it's not clear that he belongs on that show. And I think that was part of, there was a little bit of breast beating on Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, but on his part as well in that retraction episode. I think there's a sense that maybe they shouldn't have aired the Daisy monologue in the first place. They should have fact-checked it better, obviously, when they did air it. But there was also the fact that the retraction made for very good radio itself. You know, And I think part of the breast beating was also because it was excellent cringe theater. I mean, if you, if you listen to that, to, that, to that broadcast, it's really, really hard to sit through. And it's very hard for me. I think even Glass says this at one point. It's hard not to identify it with Mike Daisy. As much as you may deplore his playing fast and loose with the truth, and especially, as you say, at the expense of the very people that he's purporting to, to help, well, well, there, you can't help but identify with him. It's like the movie Shattered Glass, right? The, the film Shattered Glass about, um, about Stephen Glass, the, the journalistic fabricator. To me, watching that movie is, is like a horror movie. It's like a journalist's horror movie. You know, that moment that Hank Azaria is driving him to the places that he claims to have had these experiences, and one by one is showing up the fabrications. It really reminded me of, of the This American Life episode. You, you know that I love you both, and this is why I'm going to rescue you from your moral drift. Uh, <laughs> on this subject, I feel like you're both slowly gliding in the direction of, of Daisy's own, I think, rather pathetic defense, which is, though this is totally a context issue, it's a forum issue. If, if, if you saw this in the theater, you wouldn't expect... And Ira Glass stops him dead and says, wait a second, you, no one going to see the show. The moral authority of the show derives from one source and one source only. It's that you got on an airplane, you went and saw these things with your own eyes. Uh, I thought that was why it was important we play a clip. It saturates the tone of the guy's voice. Let me show you. You said you had to feel some sympathy for... Mike Daisy, let me yeah, but Phil sympathy doesn't mean excuse his his fabrications. I mean, I, I think he deserved to be pilloried, but I can't say that I enjoyed that pillorying 100. I, I, I do, but, <laughs> but let me show you how much I enjoyed it because this is a line I've been saving for about 15 years now. Uh, let me offer up a working definition of a monologist: someone not funny enough to be Jerry Seinfeld, not a good enough writer to be Joan Didion, and too lazy to be George Packer or David Graham. Cricket. <laughs> well, I thought that one was going to kill. <laughs> All of which raises the real question, how did I miss my own true calling? <laughs> um, uh, I, I think he deserved to be put through. I, I mean, you really, you listen to that episode and you see the naked light bulb and, and Mike Daisy's there with a marketplace reporter and Ira Glass and by the end of it you think it's better to have crossed the People's Republic of China than it is to cross Ira Glass. <laughs> 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 but there is, okay, so this is something that maybe I don't have enough perspective on as a journalist, but there is this thing that journalists do when people start playing fast and loose with the truth, which is that they get up on this journalistic high horse and they expect the entire world to play by the rules of journalism. And obviously, NPR is a great journalistic organization. The fact that This American Life airs on it and that the show was about such important subjects, they had to go through this process and they did a really good job of it. But you know, I, I, don't I don't actually believe that everyone in the entire world always has to play by the rules of journalists who like to, you know, beat their breasts, as you're saying, and, and, you know, hound, force everyone to hew to a particular form of storytelling. I think in this case, Daisy t totally took liberties that were inappropriate for This American Life, and frankly, it sounds like, for the show itself. I mean, the the... 
he says, oh, I just sort of made it seem like I met these people, or, you know, the, the, he, he talks about workers who were poisoned by N-hexane, and this, ha this did happen at a different plant that he didn't go to, but the fact that he represents himself as having shown up at a plant and encountered a bunch of, you know, child laborers, plus some guys who were poisoned by N-hexane, yeah. plus a guy with a crippled hand who saw an iPad for the first time, he misrepresents the frequency with which these things happen, and it changes our understanding of the story. But isn't also, okay, so let's say I tell a great story at a dinner party, right, or, or, or I'm giving a lecture and I throw in a, a terrific anecdote, or for that matter, you read In Cold Blood by Capote, right? So In Cold Blood is supposedly the first, what's it called, the first uh, nonfiction novel? Is that what he called it? Right, and, and it turns out, you know, it's, that's a complete misnomer. The huge swaths of it are totally made up, uh, totally fabricated. It doesn't, it doesn't hold up as the same work of literature after you find out that it's not true. It presumes upon your naivete vis-a-vis -vis its veracity, and once that's removed, it's, it's like, oh, that wasn't such a great anecdote at the dinner party if it never happened. Right. I mean, it suddenly, you, I guess what I'm saying is you place an augmented and much more serious demand on a work that is fiction. You demand that it has a depth of meaning uh, or, or, or uh, elegance of structure that, it, that, that something that's true doesn't. Um, so I, th I think what these guys are looking for is great, kind of great inflation in a weird way. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point because there was this recent book, The Lifespan of a Fact, that came out yeah. that centered on this exact argument, which was the story of a writer and a fact checker who argued about the veracity of a piece, an essay, for seven years, and um, which usually fact checking doesn't take quite that long. Um, and, you know, in the... In the resulting work, which is sort of a, the essay itself and the fact-checking notes surrounding it in a big piece of meta-literature that was much discussed, you know, the author of the essay says, look, I'm trying to take liberties with small truths in the service of a larger truth of, of the fundamental story. But he has been sort of a very canny packager of himself working in this realm that he calls creative nonfiction, I think. Um, <laughs> and sort of saying like, oh, he, he carefully labels what he does. But if Mike Daisy put a note in the brochure of, you know, the pamphlet that goes along with his live show and said, you know, these, my story about my travels in China visiting apple plants is slightly fabricated and it's a composite to get an effect. Yeah. I think it, you're right. It would totally deflate the show's power. Yeah. I, I, I cover my face when you say that because I taught a class last semester called long-form creative nonfiction, And you know the old joke about the Holy Roman Empire, neither Holy Roman nor an empire? <laughs> it was neither long-form creative nor nonfiction. but anyhow. Um, Dana, one thing we can uh, uh, rest assured about, right, is that Mike Daisy is going to take this experience and turn it into a monologue. He's he, already done that. I mean, he's... On Monday night, actually, he spoke to an audience at Georgetown about this very event, and it's very interesting to look at, at the summary of what he said. I don't know if that's going to go online or, or become available, but these kind of chicken shit prevarications that he does on the radio show are That's, are that's the out. course I'm teaching next semester, actually. <laughs> But they're, they're kind of spun out at greater length. And then it's then that you really start to, to su suspect that this guy might be some kind of a, you know, a sociopathic liar, actually, because he's really been, it's, it's, it's sort of the moment that he's been pilloried and, and brought before the, the court of, of, of public opinion. And he finds ways to finesse it and sort of say, you know, but, but I'm an artist and I can take these liberties. And there's, even in the, the show, the radio show, there's these, these strange moments. Remember there's a moment when they're, They've really got him pinned against the wall on something, and, they, and then they said, "They say, why didn't you come and tell us this when we when we did some fact checking? They did a little fact checking on the initial piece, but they couldn't find the translator that he traveled with. This was the key person that finally revealed all the the, the falsehoods." 
And, uh, and when they were saying, well, why are you keeping the name of the translator from us? Why did you do this? Were you afraid of being caught? He says something like, I was afraid that you would unpack the complexities. Do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> and that is what I mean by chicken shit for verifications. And when Ira Glass says, unpack the complexities, what does that mean? What he realizes that is that they're, he's afraid they'll find out the truth. Yeah, um, well, uh, with uh, chicken shit prevarication, you earn the last word of this segment. <laughs> but uh, uh, either one of you feeling a little, little off, like something isn't quite right? You know what I forgot? What did you forget? Hello, Julia. <laughs> Hi, Steve. <laughs> Julia, you're looking especially lovely this evening. Why, are those, thank you. Are those ringlets? I got ringlets, baby. <laughs> <laughs> It's just L.A. My hair is so beachy. I, I, that's what it is. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Oh, I'm such a pro. New Girl is a new Fox sitcom that stars Zoe Deschanel, and one day I'll know how to pronounce uh, both her first and last names. Uh, Zoe, you here tonight? <laughs> uh, why is that funny? As, um, as Jess, the eponymous new girl who moves into a house occupied by three guys uh, after being dumped by her boyfriend in an especially humiliating fashion, there are two points of interest, there are many, I'm sure, points of interest for us uh, with this show, but let's get to the first uh, two that occurred to me. The first is that the show is created by a very young woman named Elizabeth Merriweather. She's one of the so-called The Fempire, uh, a group of female screenwriters that includes um, Diablo Cody of um, Diablo Cody fame. <laughs> Uh, and the second point of interest is the phenomenon, not just its star, but the phenomenon surrounding its star. Um, uh, Julia, you are going to have to walk me through this very, very slowly. Um, she's, uh, according to a Saturday Night Live skit and virtually everything else you pick out of the ambient area about her, she is quirky. Uh, this is Zoe Deschanel. Um, but what I want to know, is quirky a euphemism for something else? Is it, is it just, does it just mean... Uh, uh, cupcakes, polka dots, blankies, and ukuleles, um, or, or does it mean, or is it a euphemism for a rollback of third wave feminism, Julia? It's just, it's one or the other. Um, so Zoe Deschanel, who I'm sure is a lovely person and is a good actress, has somehow become this like incredible feminist flashpoint on the internet over the past couple years. And I think there are two waves of Zoe Deschanel feminist, feminist flashpointery. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't she, talk about waves. Jesus God. <laughs> Look, I'm going to lay it down for you. Is there a seat available in the 1970 <laughs> Lancia? <laughs> um, so I think there's, there's knock one which is that Zoe Deschanel is a classic manic pixie dream girl. And the manic pixie dream girl is sort of an old uh, trope that people use to talk about somewhat annoying female characters in movies who seem to have no interior life and exist only to um, help the man at the center of the, of the story find inner peace, happiness, and joy, and sort of flit, flit about delightfully, encouraging them to experience things and grow. Um, which is basically, I think, the role that Dana and I play for you. <laughs> um, and so, so she has, she, this, this is a um, trope that's been talked about with a lot of actresses, but Zoe Deschanel's definitely on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl list for being so hot and, and, you know, elusive and quirky. And in particular, I think in the movie 500 Days of Summer, she, that was a role that, that was, uh, had that knock against it. There's a second knock on her, which is that she's really girly and that she's quirky and she likes cupcakes and she wears vintage dresses and she tends to get, conf she, the actress person, tends to get conflated with her characters here. But, um, and that uh, there was a bit of a storm in the 
blogosphere last summer of people suggesting that if the main models of girl, of women, of womanhood that we see in popular culture are super girly and somewhat infantilized, that that is perhaps not great for womankind. Um, and these are actually slightly different arguments, and they both kind of come to a head in the show New Girl, which has been a huge hit for Fox and is actually really good and kind of plays with both of these tropes a little bit, I think. Right. Well, we'll definitely get to talking about the uh, show, which I think surprised all of us somewhat on the upside. Uh, but first, Dana, you're, I think of you as a kind of a gender studies uh, superwoman. <laughs> uh, and I mean that actually sort of less shit-eatingly than it sounded. <laughs> because you studied with Judith Butler at, uh, at Berkeley, right, of... Um, What's her famous book again? Gender Trouble. Gender Trouble, right. Um, And um, you're simply adorkable. (laughs) (laughs) You're both of these things, which is a very unusual combination. I I don't even... There's no question attached to that joke. Um, What do you make of the actress in the show? (laughs) As long as you're making that comparison, I have to just point out that Jacob Weisberg, former editor of Slate and now head of the Slate group, is here tonight. And also simply adorkable. (laughs) And also simply adorkable. Once did like a thing where he cast everyone at Slate, like if there was a Slate movie, who would be who? And he said that Zoe Deschanel would be me, which was was odd. And as I remember, you were Maggie Gyllenhaal. Who is Steve? I'm not sure if Steve got cast. If Jacob's here, maybe he remembers who is Steve. I was also Maggie Gyllenhaal. This is a very glamorous notion of Slate that you're... <laughs> it's Hollywood. That would be the Hollywood version of Slate. But so, so what was the question? <laughs> Do you like the show? You know, I mean, when we went into preparing the segment, I thought, this show is going to be so cloying. I can't believe I have to make myself watch it. I thought it was pretty good, and I'm pretty impressed with the way that the show is starting to incorporate these criticisms of Zoe Deschanel into, into the character. And I think it's actually becoming, I would actually say that the couple episodes of it that I watched for, for prepping for this are kind of feminist. I mean, it's, it's created by a woman, a very young woman. The episode that I watched was directed by Lynn Shelton, the director of, uh, of Hump Day, oh, okay. another young, you know, sort of emerging female on the movie scene. And it didn't at all seem to me that it just, it, none of that bothered me at all. I think I would have to put myself in the, the category of those who, you know, just, just want her bangs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think one of the, one of the things is that the, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing is actually annoying. But this is a show that she is the star of. You know, it passes the, the Bechdel test, the Alison Bechdel, the um, feminist cartoonist who says that you can tell if uh, a piece of media is... Uh, pro-women or not, based on whether... What is it? There, are, there have to be, be more than one woman. And they need the to talk... The two women characters must talk to each other. And they must talk about something other than guys. Right. Um, and that happens on the show all the time. Yeah. So it passes the Bechdel test. So it's, it passes the Manic Pixie Dream Girl test. She's not just an ornament in the show. And then, in terms of the adorkability, it's this slightly complicated thing where, on the one hand, I don't begrudge any woman the right to like cupcakes and wear ruffles. That seems fine. Um, and I also, in the current media landscape, don't feel like it matters if there's a show that stars such a woman, because there are other shows that star other types of women. And it's also, you know, you can sort of make the case, she's such a spaz, you don't see that many hyper-competent women in media, but that's not really true. You do see hyper-competent women of various kinds, often in dramas or procedurals. Um, often their love lives are a mess. That happens in romantic comedies too. But well, at a point that the show's, the show's creator makes, or just made, I think, this week in Entertainment Weekly asked about this, is that there's so much entertainment for young men that's all about kind of being a, a slacker, being a fuck-up, being somebody who doesn't have it together, right? Being essentially sort of a young 
crazy person, which all not just not just Zoe's character, but all the people on this show. The, the whole roommate contingent seems like they're a bunch of kids who don't have it together. Their cars don't work. They don't have health insurance. Yeah, right? I totally agree with you. Um, uh, and uh, this gets to my thesis about the show, which is that um, what I find most interesting about the whole MPDG idea is that th- that these. <laughs> that these women in the films represent fantasy projections of the male protagonists, but they're also as creative, as creative, as created characters. They represent a kind of fantasy on the part of male, typically male screenwriters. Uh, and this reverses it, right? This is a very smart, very sharply written sitcom created by, and, and many of the episodes, I think all the episodes I saw written by a woman. Uh, and yet the heart of the show isn't really even Zoe Deschanel. I think it's the male roommate. So it's, it's this total turn on the Manic Pixie Dream Girl in that it's an Apatovian bromance as imagined by a woman, right? right. These are sort of fantasy projections of this woman writer. Uh, and she's done a great job creating these guys and getting their banter down. I, mean, I, I walk away from the show like disoriented by my affection for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the writing is really good. And the writing, I think, has gotten more... The characters have kind of settled into themselves over the course of the season. The writing is really good and subtle. And it's just one of those shows that doesn't have to, like, telegraph the lesson at the end of every episode. Like, there was a really lovely moment a few weeks ago where Nick, one of the guy roommates, called Jess, the Zoe, Desch- Zoe Deschanel character, on you know, how she's a little bit arch and he says something to her like, how come you're never just real and sort of addresses her kind of quirk holding life at arm's length thing in a way that friends sometimes do and they have a little rift within the show and then they kind of unrift and it all happens very subtly and subtextually and there's not just a moment at the end of the show where they're like, it was so tough how we had that fight but now we made up and we're roommates again. You know, like it's just, it's, a, it's really well written and the writing carries it and it... I agree. It's really well written. And you would agree, right, Dana? You were pointing to this earlier. The turning point in the show is when they started putting the Zoe Deschanel-ness of Zoe Deschanel on trial, right? They, they actually embedded that in the, the thrust of the show. So as you say, there's this moment where he says to her, well, you're just not r- real. Like, you couldn't speak at my funeral. You know, he thinks he might be terminally ill. He's not. But, and, and he says... <laughs> spoiler. Spoiler, right? Um, <laughs> Uh, but well, you can't speak at my funeral because you're unreal. And then in another episode, he has a girl, this character, same character, male character, has a girlfriend who's a lawyer and just embodies adult womanhood and, and adult responsibility. And she loathes Zoe Deschanel and, in fact, hates her for cupcakes. And she says something like, it looks like every morning you, got, uh, you were dressed by bluebirds. <laughs> and... Uh, it was, it, was really, it was really quite well done. I mean, on behalf of blazer-wearing women around the world, I was slightly saddened <laughs> by the treatment that Lizzie Kaplan, a great actress, got in that role. But it's Zoe Deschanel's show, and Lizzie Kaplan can have her own show. And, I mean, it's, it's similar to the conversation we had about Liz Lemon a few weeks ago. It's like, it's okay if Liz Lemon is a spaz who doesn't have a, her life together, and it's okay if Zoe Deschanel is a spaz. It's like, it's comedy. If they had their lives together professionally and personally, there would be no show, so. Right, right. But uh, I, can, I have to say that I can completely understand people who just can't stand Zoe Deschanel. I mean, she's a very strong personality, and I suspect that her real-life personality must be something like this character that she always seems to be playing in every show and movie. I think she really is just sort of a person who gets by on her charm and the force of her personality, and if it rubs you the wrong way, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you're, just, you're just not going to buy The show's it. not going to win you over. I want to close on this note. Uh, uh, um, your name is Julia. <laughs> <It>, you... <laughs> Um, uh, you look as though you wake up every morning and are dressed by peregrine falcons. (laughs) (laughs) 
That would be so awesome. <laughs> well, then it, it, your life must be awesome because it's true. All right, let's move on. The Hunger Games is the first book in a trilogy by the author Suzanne Collins. It's a futuristic resource collapse parable crossed with a biting satire of reality TV. You all probably know it tells the story of an annual reaping, a Shirley Jackson-esque scenario in which children are chosen by lottery to compete in a gladiatorial competition unto the death. Um, uh, I had not read the book until last week. I deem it the most juicily manipulative genre book I've read since Silence of the Lambs. I did truly love it. I loved the movie. And one of the things I loved about the movie was uh, a a really interesting casting choice. uh, uh, As Effie Trinket, um, uh, we have with us Elizabeth Banks joining us to talk about uh, how she created that role. The wonderful Elizabeth Banks is coming up on stage. Thank you. Hi. Hey. Hi. Hello. 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 You you are not adorable. Um, Thank God. You're 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 womanly, actually, fully womanly. Um, uh, You've been in so many great movies. Zoe does not wear leather pants. No. uh, you've been in so many great movies, right? You've been in 40-Year-Old Virgin, you're on 30 Rock. There is so much to ask you, so let's, let's dig in right away. Um, do, you, um, do you make your own granola? No. <laughs> no? No. When you eat granola, do you, do you tolerate the presence of coconut in yes. the... See? Yeah, I'm okay with coconut. Did my team know this about me? <laughs> Alyssa? All right, anyhow. Um, I found a, I hope you don't mind, I'm going to throw a quote from you back at you. It's oh, from God. the press materials that we were given when I'm we saw I'm sure it. I said it exactly word for word what you're going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but this is a good one. You should be proud of uh, either the quote or your publicist. Uh, quote, I read the book right when it was published and I fell in love with it. I called everyone I knew the minute I heard they were making a movie of it. It was a dream of mine to be in it and Effie was the character I knew I had to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with you about the book. The book is to- totally compelling. It's really, in its way, a kind of a masterpiece. Tell me about how you discovered the book, what you saw in the book, and why you, why you knew you just had to be part of it. Uh, well, I read the book. It was given to me by a, a publishing friend. Um, I have a production company with my husband, who's over here, and we are constantly <laughs> looking for material to develop as movies. And uh, we read a similarly themed book called The Maze Runner, which is also a really good book. Um, but it's not quite the book that The Hunger Games is. And someone said to, said to me, well, if you liked The Maze Runner, you'll really love The Hunger Games. And I did. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I read it right away, hardcover, got Catching Fire, and then um, was on the Amazon wait list for about three months for Mockingjay. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? Which is there are so many, if you just describe the book, there are so many things like the book, right? Mm-hmm. It would sound generic. It really is the execution of it is, I would say, let's just flawless, right? I mean, yeah. the, the woman has uh, such a sense of pace and control and totally compelling. Yeah. Um, so the part you play, why don't you describe a little bit the part that you play and what the challenges were in embodying this person who herself is kind of the embodiment of the hypocrisy of this mm-hmm. world, right? Yeah, she is the, she is the sort of surrogate in the, in the book for the totalitarian regime, the capital that runs the Hunger Games, that um, forces these districts to send these young people um, to a death match. She is sort of a PR maven and a bit of a... Um, uh, 
I, she drank the Kool-Aid of the whole situation. I, I find, I'm trying to find empathy with her. Because <laughs> um, she's essentially the villain of the piece. Yeah, so is that very hard if you, you're trying to create this role. Yeah. Are, are, you're, you know, you're trying to find some way to enter that character sympathetically. You have to be sympathetic to the character even though we don't have to be sympathetic to her. That's right, yeah. I mean, they always, you know, they tell you in drama school, like, even if you play Hitler, you really got to love Hitler. <laughs> so, um, you know, I really loved Effie. And I loved Effie. She is very complicated. You know, she... She leads, she essentially, her job in the world is to lead young people to their death. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, she's, she has a great attitude despite that. <laughs> and really puts a sunny, you know, spin on everything that's going on. And um, I really love that juxtaposition, you know, and the dynamic that she sets up with the lead character, Katniss Everdeen, who's a real pain in her ass, basically. Um, you know, is like the behavior of Katniss reflects on Effie because Effie's responsible for this young girl. And so every time Effie acts badly, it's bad for Effie. Mm -hmm. And I love that dynamic. That creates great conflict and, uh, you know, a great character in a movie. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's really seeing how this woman who's the protagonist, this woman girl who's the protagonist at the center of the movie, what your it was through that relationship, right, that your character comes into focus because yeah. you're the opposite of her. The total some, opposite you, of her in every way, yeah. Yeah, and that balances out the movie. Yeah. Well, I, I should say, and it, it, you are amazing in this movie, uh, you, uh, this is a compliment. You're unrecognizable in some way <laughs> Thank you. in the role. You really are someone so totally different. Um, you don't embody evil. Um, <laughs> in, in your everyday life. <laughs> I have a question related to that, so which is the way that Effie Trinket looks, I don't know how many of you have seen the trailers for the movie and the posters and things, but she looks really intense, right? Yeah, I mean, more so than I expected even from the book. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just hear about that. Like, how did you arrive at that look and, and what did it feel like to transform into that, that person and how much input did you have in it? Um, it was a great collaboration. Everyone that worked on the film is Academy Award nominated in those departments, the costumes, hair and makeup people. And um, I... The director of the movie, Gary Ross, he said, I don't know, in my head, I just always thought she looked like Joel Grey in Cabaret. <laughs> so that was our starting point, okay? Um, and then, you know, she has pink hair. Suzanne Collins, who wrote the books, gave us our roadmap. Pink hair, outrageous outfits, crazy capital accent, what is that? So, you know, we just had to interpret Suzanne. And... Um, the wigs, essentially, we, I felt like Effie was like a modern-day Marie Antoinette in that she sits in this palace of excess and, um, you know, says, let them eat cake. Yeah, the wigs really evoke the yeah, 18th century, for sure. they really do. And, um, and then we went with a little kabuki and just, you know, just as wild as we could get. We, we, I felt like the movie takes place in the future, but we wanted everything to be recognizable as something that, you know, comes from our human history. We, didn't, we weren't creating Whoville. We weren't, um, you know, we, this is not Dr. Seuss. It wasn't the fifth element. We weren't coming up with things, you know, out of nowhere. Right. One of the things that's really interesting about the book is that it has its own, um, <laughs> it has its own sort of conflict, I think, about the makeovers that happen in the Capitol. Because, mm -hmm. so within the book, right, the Capitol people are evil, and you can tell that because they get crazy plastic surgery, and they paint, dye their hair blue, mm -hmm. and they wear weird earrings and eyelashes and whatever, and we know that Katniss is the hero because she's just like a scrappy, pure, pure yeah. girl who hunts in the woods and doesn't shave her legs. Yep. But <laughs> when she gets to the Capitol, 
she has this crazy makeover, and the makeover is like lavishly described, and all of the like treats of the capital are lavishly described. So the book kind of has it both ways, right? Because it yeah. sort of enjoys um, giving this pure uh, Artemis-like girl of the wild a, a lavish makeover, and like basically her main ally is a stylist, yes, uh, played in the movie by Lenny Kravitz, um, with an understated eyeshadow, and. Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a funny juxtaposition, and it made me think a little bit about sort of Hollywood generally, and and kind of the like crazy dressing up that one has to do as, mm-hmm. a, as a famous actress. That's lady right. Like I don't are. leave the house without shaving my legs if my legs are going to be bare, which is why I'm wearing pants tonight. <laughs> <laughs> because I don't want to hear about it on the internet. <laughs> you you were not dressed by peregrine fla- uh, falcons, I take it. No. Tonight, no. Um, but yeah, no, I was wondering, you know, sort of how you thought about that conflict within the book. Um, wow, I didn't really... Jeez, oh, you guys are so smart. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's... The, the book is about transform... For me, the book really is about transformation. The series is about this young girl who transforms from a sort of, as you say, naive, very pure, um, innocent into a revolutionary. I mean, she becomes essentially Joan of Arc. And part of that transformation, I think, is, uh, is exactly is that physical thing of, um, you know, you, you have to shed certain parts of yourself as you become, you know, as you the, become the butterfly. Right. Um, so I, that's what, to me, what Suzanne was sort of getting at with all that. And, and that she, resi- you know, she can only resist so much of what the capital's culture is. Um, she is sucked into it on a certain level because she has to be, uh, right. because it's the capital who uh, is going to determine, that those people that are going to determine her life or death. Right, and she ends up using their tools against them. Exactly, yeah. Uh, what do you think about the, uh, as far as you know, the, the really dark dystopia of this, mm-hmm. of this movie and the fact that it is about children killing children? I mean, are you going to advise friends with kids? What would you say is the cutoff age for the movie? And do you, <laughs> do you worry about children seeing it who maybe well, shouldn't? Well, you know, it's PG-13. So, of course, the, I have to say 13. <laughs> because that's what the MPAA says. Uh, I think that, you, you know, there are a lot of issues and if you watch Jersey fucking Shore you can go see this goddamn movie <laughs> like I don't understand what the big fucking controversy is it's like there is horrible bad behavior everywhere around us yeah. I remember being sent the video of like the, of bum war bum fights or whatever do you remember that yes that yes. is the lowest depths of our humanity people like yeah. you know and that is exists and then at the end of the bum fight when the situation takes the guy's head and goes <laughs> and, and kills him in one Look, it's not... There's life and death all around us. The fucking Congo is happening, okay? Like, this is a movie. <laughs> it's really not that big of a deal. The, the, like, I really don't understand it. I, re- I mean, look, a nine-year-old is probably not uh, uh, mature enough to see this, but decide, you're the parent of the nine-year-old. Decide for yourself what your kid can handle. Yeah. It is... But I, I guarantee your nine-year-old has seen Jersey Shore. <laughs> it is interesting, though, the difference between the book and the movie. Like, there's so much violence in the book, and in a weird way, you can linger on the violence more in the text because it's less... Mm-hmm. It's not in your face. Yeah, yeah it's not and, the, and the movie is, like, very skillful, I think, in the way that it kind of glancingly suggests the, the horrible kid-on-kid violence mm-hmm. without actually just... You know, it's not, it's not like the scene in 
Drive or whatever some of the other super bloody movies we've seen this year. It's not like any other movie. Like the, yeah. <laughs> the blood sort of spatters in from the right. from the periphery. Well, of course, we knew we were making a PG thirteen movie too, so we are protecting as much of the brutality that we find necessary to tell this story compellingly, so you understand what Katniss is up against. But we're also protecting the the young fans of this series um, who want to go see the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to say that that you know. You know, I can be, like, as nasty and picky and low-minded and fussy and negative as the next guy. (laughs) And uh, and I never, reading the book and watching the movie, I never thought, oh, that's exploitative at all. I mean, she's just that good a writer, and you guys did such a flawless job. Well, also because it's a critique, right? I mean, mentioning Jersey Shore is interesting because it is a critique of reality television, ultimately, right? Like, extrapolating it to the most extreme degree. That's right. Right, and plus, for all the violence there is in the dystopian future, there's also high-speed rail. So it, <laughs> right, so it all, it's like, you know, yeah, it's all right. Can I, can I ask you a, um, a very basic question? I hope so. I hope you're capable of that, yes. All right, let's see. <laughs> let's see if I can do it. Uh, team Peter or Team Gail? <laughs> um, I get asked that question literally every day. <laughs> I am Team Peter. Yeah. I'm, I'm out there with it. I'm Team Peter. Gail is really handsome. I mean, Liam Hemsworth is delicious, um, as is Josh. But I just think, you know, I, uh, being, uh, being my girly girl side coming out, Lapita's all about Katniss and his love for Katniss, and, and I just think that's really romantic. Oh, that's it is. sweet. All right, well, on that note, um, <laughs> we often ask guests to stick around and endorse, and the guests often say, uh, endorse, what's that? Um, but uh, would you do that and, sure. and wing it with us? I'll wing it. All right, so we'll go around. We'll go bing, 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 bing. Sure. Right. Julia. I'll, I'll go bing first. Okay. Um, so I want to endorse um, our national parks. <laughs> All right. I didn't know I was going to get thunderous applause for that. Um, but having driven, having been on this long drive for the last week or so, I went to, um, I went through a bunch of them, including the Grand Canyon and a couple other places. But one that really struck me is the Gila Wilderness, um, or the Leopold Wilderness in the Gila National Forest in New Mexico, which was uh, created by this guy, Aldo Leopold, and which I learned from a sign at the side of the road was the first wilderness ever set aside. And the guy who created it believed that to be set aside as a wilderness, you must be able to ride on horseback through it for five days, I think, and not encounter sign of, of man or humankind, which I liked as a definition, although not one that's super useful to me at the moment, <laughs> since I was not riding across the country on horseback. But um, this particular wilderness was really beautiful and was not at all what I expected the mountains of New Mexico to look like. And it was gorgeous. Uh, And then the Grand Canyon was amazing. And then closer to LA, I went through the Mojave Desert this weekend and went for a hike at the Essex Road exit called the Hole in the Wall, which is crazy rocks that look like they're from the future and the past at the same time in the middle of succulents in the middle of the crazy desert. And also there was a snowstorm in the desert while I was there. And it was incredible. So my recommendation is find the national park nearest to you, go there and do a hike there that you have not done before. Wow. That's my endorsement. Nice. That was uh, exquisite. Thank you. <laughs> They're not. Oh, I'm so showing up. My endorsements are going to be so kind of bookish and nerdy after that 
Wild West endorsement. I love it. <laughs> okay, so, so mine are inspired by things that I came across while preparing these topics. So they're sort of tangentially related to some of the topics. So in relation to the Hunger Games, if you have a daughter who's either not ready for the Hunger Games or maybe she's too much of a girly girl, Zoe Deschanel, and she just can't handle the killing children, killing, killing children angle yet, then, uh, then I, I want to recommend uh, the Dodie Smith novel, I Capture the Castle. Does anybody know this, this, this book? So <laughs> I like this okay, little pocket of applause for Dodie Smith. So Dodie Smith is the author of 101 Dalmatians and its sequels, which are also great, great, great children's books and adult books. I love those books. But her very first book is sort of a young adult classic called I Capture the Castle, about two sisters growing up in a decaying castle in England and their various romantic uh, crisscrossings. And it's a really wonderful book. And it's perfect for the spring because it takes place in the spring and it's all about things blossoming and young love blossoming. So get I Capture the Castle and read it this spring. And the other was, in researching Zoe, we didn't talk at all about her musical career and the fact that she has this group called She and Him with, with the musician M. Ward. Yeah. And uh, I don't know their music very well. What I've listened to, I quite like. I think she's not the world's most gifted singer, but she can put across a song really nicely. Um, but in the context of, of that, then I just remembered this fantastic M. Ward album that my brother gave me. So this is also a thank you to my brother, Scott Stevens, who gave me this record back when it came out in 2003, called The Transfiguration of Vincent. It's an M. Ward solo record. It's a great album. And it's just, yeah, it's just beautiful start to finish. It's very sort of old-timey, a little bit sort of roots music. He can play any instrument. He can sort of produce anything. He's a fantastic, he's great taste. And it's just a, a very beautiful kind of mood, mood piece, The Transfiguration of Vincent oh, wow. by M. Ward. Do you want to go next, or do you want me to go? No, and... you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, L.A., you have given me so many things that I love, but you've given me one thing that I love above all others, Robert Frost. <laughs> that's, that's like a really, really pathetic in-joke. Uh, when, when we did the live show in Seattle, I thanked them profusely and in similarly sort of solemn tones for um, Elliot Smith, and you've never heard a room go deader <laughs> because he's from Portland. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, Robert Frost was fond of, he, 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 he loved giving the business to T.S. Eliot, and he was very fond of saying, oh yeah, T.S. Eliot, the great English poet from St. Louis. <laughs> well, Robert Frost, as many of you probably know, is the great New England poet from... Oh, you're fucking fired, really? <laughs> Robert Frost is from San Francisco, people. Do you know the poem, uh, Once by the Pacific? Well, I do, and it goes like this. <laughs> Shattered water made a misty din. Great waves looked over others coming in. I actually do know that poem. It's a great poem. Um, but I wanted to recommend it. It's a beautiful poem. I also, apropos of our discussion about Mike Daisy, he's a poltroon and a coward, and I don't like him very much. But, but what, what is interesting is that the memoir uh, period was really... I mean, if the nonfiction novel was... That, if that era was um, uh, initiated by uh, Truman Capote. The memoir era was really initiated by an author named Frederick Exley, Fred Exley from upstate New York, um, who wrote a book. What's fascinating about this, in the late 60s, he wrote a book called A Fan's Notes, which uh, is, is truly one of my favorite books of all time. And what I love about that book is the total honesty with which he labeled it a novel, because it's effectively the story. It, today, there's, it would be mar not only, they would force him to call it a memoir and swear up and down that it was uh, nonfiction through and through. But the truth is, it was, it was a somewhat thinly fictionalized account of his own life. And he said, though the events in this book bear similarity to those of that long malaise, my life, I have drawn, 
I have drawn freely from the imagination and adhered only loosely to the pattern of my past life. To this extent, and for this reason, I ask to be judged a writer of fantasy. And the book 100% holds up uh, as, a, as a, a work independent of your need to believe that it happened or didn't happen, which should be the standard of most of these books. And that's, and only then, is when that question becomes irrelevant, right? Um, if it could go almost either way. And then finally, I just I have to give a shout out to, to Bruce Springsteen. His new album probably isn't great. I haven't heard all of it. It's pretty good. But a certain attention needs to be paid to the fact that this guy became famous at exactly the moment that his core audience was going conservative, right? Uh, the, the so-called classic Reagan voter, the Catholic blue-collar white working class voter, shifted to the GOP under Reagan. Um, and, and during that same time, Bruce Springsteen has only gotten more and more progressive in his politics. Um, he's never once wavered in order to grow his audience or flatter his audience, not once that I can think of. Um, and so when he comes out with an album that says, I'm with you people, you the 99%, he has absolutely no splaining to do. Bruce, I love you. Um, <laughs> Julia, thank you so much. That Wait, was really Elizabeth fun. didn't endorse. Is she going? Oh my God! Shit! <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <clears throat> Elizabeth, what do you have? <laughs> um, I would like to endorse uh, the graphic novel, just generally. Um, I'm a, I think that uh, it's a. Uh, you know, you, you guys, you were so highfalutin over here, <laughs> and um, you know, I think young people especially young boys, really love graphic novels, and they make graphic novels for all shapes and sizes now, not just young boys, and they're giving us some of the best sort of culture out there. I mean, The Walking Dead is based on this amazing graphic novel. My husband and I made a, a, a not very good movie based on a really great graphic novel called The Surrogates, and um, Meltdown Comics, which is one of my favorite sort of shops here in L.A. I'm doing the L.A.-based, you know, uh, endorsement. Um, also just started doing comedy nights, which is pretty rocking, because uh, I think they realized that the graphic, uh, the graphic novel nerd is exactly the same demo as the comedy nerds. And um, so they're now hosting these great comedy nights. So I'm also endorsing just Meltdown. Just go there and just start flipping through, and you might find something really fun. Uh, awesome. All right. That was off the top of my head. I don't know. You had notebooks and shit. I, <laughs> I just came up with that. <laughs> Represent. I mean, the thing is, um, uh, it was totally Pavlovian that I went into the end of the show because I always endorse last. But, um, but that was brilliant. And it was an amazing fact of my life that I sat this close to Elizabeth Banks. You were an amazing guest. You really Thank were. You. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Dana, I sit this close to you all the time, <laughs> but it's lovely. Thank you so much. That was fun. Julia, thank you. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Thank you, a huge thank you to Zocalo and uh, Public Square for organizing our L.A. live show. Uh, without you, no show in L.A. It was a tremendous place. Uh, and I keyed about four of your cars. I hope that's all right. Uh, and thank you to the 
Peterson Automotive Museum, which I should have said first. Our producer is Jesse Baker. Our intern is Matt Siegel. Not for much longer. We're very sorry about that. We're going to need a new intern, so send us your resumes if you uh, live on the East Coast. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and the magnificent Elizabeth Banks, I'm Stephen. Go see your movie. You're all going to do it anyway, but <laughs> pretend you're going because I told you to. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us. So my question is the, has to do with the um, crossover between politics and culture. We've had a lot of experiences in the last week or so, and uh, I'm just wondering how you think that culturally, uh, where it comes from, how, what, what's going on with that? The intersection of politics and culture? I don't know. I mean, it's something that we talk about every week in terms of what are we going to do for our show because Slate also has a political gap fest and there's obviously so many questions, almost every question that's a political question very quickly becomes a cultural one as well, right? I mean, the Mike Daisy topic that we talked about tonight could just as easily have been, and it is, in fact, being taken on as, the, as a political one. Yeah, and the, mo- I mean, the movie, and the movie under it's game. like, of course it is. It's got to be. And all these wonderful things she said about Zoe Deschanel or not wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Very political. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just like the movie wouldn't have any trenchancy if you didn't feel like it were reflecting back on our current social arrangements, right? And so it's inevitably political at some level, and that's why it's good, right? You wouldn't say, oh, here's where my aesthetic experience of Hunger Games stops, and here's where it's, you know, flattery of my political predisposition begins. Um, just a few weeks ago or months ago, Arthur Brisbane, who's a public editor of the New York Times, uh, wrote a column where he asked whether journalists should uh, report lies when told by politicians uh, as lies or whether they should just sort of give up on that responsibility entirely and wash their hands of it. Um, I think a lot of uh, readers are also uh, more and more uh, critical of the false equivalencies that a lot of newspapers engage in uh, in order to achieve the appearance of balance. So I'm wondering if these journalistic standards of truth and accuracy are actually as clear-cut as you're sort of suggesting they are. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's one of the things that is a little tricky with journalists sort of standing up and, and pillaring Mike Daisy, is any, any of us, when we write a story, we have to balance the need to be totally factually accurate and the need to be entertaining. And, um, you know, I think the question that political reporters face for newspapers, whether they just kind of take down what the politician says on the stump and whether they have the burden to actually sort of fact check those claims bit by bit as they report them, I think that's something for the newspapers to debate. I mean, it is a role that we see people playing more and more on the internet. It's something we try and do at Slate. It's something that people do at places like, uh, you know, the, the various political fact-checking websites that exist. You know, even if the folks who are out on the trail writing down what the politicians say don't necessarily have the time in the moment to assess whether Romney's claim about how many jobs he created at Bain you know, in that instant, they're getting the fact that he said that out there and other folks in the journalistic sphere will eventually go back and kind of check those claims and see what, you know, see what Bain was really up to and how, did it create jobs and are they factoring in the jobs that were lost when various industries were consolidated. Um, so, I mean, I, I agree that, that those comments should be held to account um, and I think that sort of the journalistic ecosystem is pretty good at doing that and probably could do it a lot more of it. Um, but I don't necessarily think that the political reporter on the campaign trail has the burden to do that in the exact instance of getting that quote and putting it down. My question is about graphic novels. Uh, I've had great success with reluctant readers uh, with graphic novels, but why do you all think that they have such a bad rap? A lot of people don't consider them real books. Do you think they do anymore? I feel like they've gotten all this literature cred. When was the last time you read one? 
Uh, that's a good question. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. But I, we, I guess I read... The, We've um, read some for the Gutfest. We read I, Watchmen when Watchmen came out. No, no, I, I don't... I mean, I don't read them as much as I would like to. I mean, they're just part of, uh, you know, all the media I take in. Yeah. But um, I do think they have a bad rap because they have pictures in them. I mean, you know. <laughs> right. What's your, what's your favorite one? Or some um, of your favorites, like Watchman or... I like well, Watchmen's very dystopian future too. Um, I, my husband and I were talking today about this cool one that we like called Chew. That's like a procedural. Yeah, sweet. Right. It's really fucked up. It's like really dark. Wait, and what weird. kind of procedural? I mean, that's the thing about um, graphic novels too is you're getting so much information from the pictures, not just the words. I mean, that, it, that's why it's a cool medium. I mean, it's sort of a blend of the visual and um, your imagination. I feel like, I mean, there's a, I, for me, the resistance to graphic novels is not aesthetic or snobbish at all. It's not sort of like, that's beneath me to read. I'm just not used to reading in that way. Yeah. I feel like I'm just such a, a, a word reader that mm-hmm. I, I continually do this thing where I read the, all the balloons and then go back and look at the pictures. <laughs> you know, I just have trouble taking in information in that way. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's a very valid point. So I know among a lot of people things, that can't read scripts because they don't understand... They have the to grammar, the name, right. and then the line, and then the, this character. They don't know how to read a script. Right. Yeah, I think it's yeah. just practice. I think yeah. if I yeah. read more, and if they were the, the more, more visually uncluttered ones, were the ones I love I to also, read. Yeah, and I also and not think, so many boobies. Not a boobies. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, so, so that could account for some of the bad rap too, right? Yeah. I mean, there is a lot of sexism. At there's least a lot in, of yeah. sexism. Yeah. I also think there's some bandwagon jumping. Like there's comics artists and, and people who their great end goal is to make a beautiful graphic novel and they do and those are really interesting but then there's sort of a bit of a publishing trend of like let's make a graphic novel of everything and like why don't we tell all stories in graphic novel form and I think actually when you kind of latch graphic novelism onto nonfiction journalism mm-hmm. as a way to make it fun like sometimes that can be an incredible triumph like actually Slay excerpted some they made a, a couple guys made a, a graphic novel of the 9-11 report which was incredible and really helped you understand all of the reporting that went into that understanding of what happened on that day but then uh, there have been other topics like the 08 campaign that have been turned into graphic novels. It's like, this didn't need to be a graphic novel. Yeah. It's not serving, the, serving yeah. anybody. The question is more for Julia. It always seems like you take the opposite side or <laughs> to whatever Stephen is talking about. So I, I, I always wonder if you just try to look at the opposite side of what it's being explained. Well, Julia. you've uncovered the truth. <laughs> We're mortal enemies, and actually, at the uh, drinks tonight, we're going to battle to the death. So, and I'm going to make a graphic novel out of it. <laughs> this is the last Gab Fest ever. Um, it's been really nice. Uh, no, I mean, we, we enjoy sparring. I think, in part, it's more fun if we disagree with each other. The show is like more fun if we can find opposing points and argue them out. So I think sometimes we... we settle into those roles because it makes for a fun conversation, but also genuinely, you know, I'm a populist hack and Steve is an artist, so <laughs> that's, that's also at the root of our conflicts. Yes. <laughs> I have and they question. put me in the middle for a reason, I keep them apart. You mentioned earlier during the New Girl segment about uh, comparing it to the Liz Lemon discussion you had a few weeks ago. And I just had a quick question for Elizabeth, and that is Avery Jessup going to be getting out of North Korea anytime soon? <laughs> Thank you for asking that. I am going back to 30 Rock. Yay! Um, but I don't know in what capacity. It could be in a body bag. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't read the scripts, but they have, I, they, I have cleared the dates to shoot it. 
did you get um, like a lot of comment when Kim Jong-un, your husband, yes. ascended to ruling North Korea? I did get a lot of comment. There was a big um, sort of Twitter uh, mayhem surrounding that, yeah. Did I was a little concerned that people were, that Americans were more, more concerned about a fictional television character than about the fate of the North Korean people. But, um, but I'll take it. It's an honor, though, to have the First Lady of North Korea here with us tonight. That's right. So. That's right. They, they need a better pub- publicist. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago on the political gab fest, Dave Plotz um, repeatedly said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, and Bazelon finally called him out on it. And he said that it was his defense mechanism because certain podcasts are a little free-flowing with the profanity. So I just wanted to give you all a chance to respond. So David is my boss, right? And I think this criticism was directed at me because I swear too much on the GabFest. And and we've... Why do you think you swear more than anybody else? For a while we thought we all swore, but then it turns out that when I go on vacation, sometimes you guys don't get the explicit rating. (laughs) So I basically think it was a very passive-aggressive form of feedback from my boss. I think that this should have happened in a private, you know, quarterly session where we talked about my goals and... um... (laughs) By which you mean, fuck him. (laughs) Yeah, fuck that guy. Yeah, when I heard that gap, I just, I just took it as license to swear. I mean, that then we're branding ourselves as the swearing podcast at Slate, so, you know, we'll take that and run with it. Andy asked his daughter to ask us to swear. I mean, we, we've, we've uh, yeah, I think, I think we've found our groove. We're going to roll with it. Although my mother also told me she was disappointed in the level of my swearing. <laughs> I finally got her to listen to podcasts, like, four years into doing this show, and that was her main comment. So maybe I need maybe I need to start saying no, oh my goodness. No, no, no. Don't read it. <laughs> this question's for Stephen. I appreciate your endorsement of Bruce Springsteen staying true to his progressive roots, and I'm curious how you feel about the fact that um, born in the USA and now we're seeing it again with We Take Care of Our Own is seems to be co-opted by people who don't really understand what it means. I see yeah. Born in the USA all the time as the super pro-America go war anthem, and I'm curious. Right, so people who don't remember the history, in 84, he comes out with that album, you know, and he was, what's so fascinating about him, he was one kind of rock star in the 70s, and then he was a totally other kind of rock star in the 80s. You know, in the 70s, he was kind of a cult guy from Jersey. He made these really, I mean, the first two albums were kind of Baroque in their language and in some ways in their musicality. And he started focusing it down, and he got, but he got, and by Darkness on the Edge of Town, it was very spare and Steinbeckian and bleak, like really dark, and you would never have confused him for, you know, some kind of exploitable patriot at all. And then the weird thing happened in the 80s where you thought, well, you know, he's already had almost a full career as a rock star in rock star years, right? He's like in his mid-60s at this point. And then he becomes like a global brand behind Red, White, and Blue. And, he, and, and that year of that album is the year of Mary Lou Retton and the 84 Olympics and the Reagan re-election, which was Morning in America. And it was so easy to fold him and especially that song uh, into that. Um, so I think the really interesting question is, well, you know, he's a commercial artist. He does want to sell records and he's got his finger to the wind. You know, you know he comes off as this kind of like I mean, he, I, he, every, every person I know who's ever met Bruce Springsteen tells me what you see is what you get, right? There's no sly fox hidden underneath that. He's a, absolutely a great guy in what he says he believes and what he believes he says. But nonetheless, you always wonder, like, dude, like you sold 25 million albums singing Born in the USA with a flag, you know, an American flag on your video. Are you completely innocent of the way it would have been construed, right? 
even though when you listen to the lyrics of the song, he's talking about the utter betrayal of the men who fought in Vietnam and how totally devastating that legacy is. And on the album, the song is surrounded by, you know, working class dirge after working class dirge that says, you all but, you know, you, Ronald Reagan, have all but fucking abandoned us. But I'll tell you where he establishes bona, reestablishes bona fides. They asked him over and over and over again, they meaning corporate America, especially I think either Ford or Chevy, asked him over and over and over again, what's your price? What's your price? They wanted that song so badly on a truck ad, uh, and they finally had to s- settle for John Cougar, right? Well, <laughs> J- John, are you here tonight? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and so, you know, I mean, you know, if you, wanna, if you wanna interpret him as having sold out in one way, he certainly turned down the opportunity to do it in another way. Um, yeah. I don't see where you would find a sellout and standing in front of a flag. I mean, why does the right get no, to no, co-opt no, no, the no, image no, of the no, flag? No, 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 not, it's not that at all. It was that it was very easy for that song to be heard as a, you know, there's this thing in publishing. People in publishing, editors say this. They say, if you put the word America in your title, you will sell 10% more books, more copies of your book, right? And it's like, well, you think of Bruce Springsteen as a guy who just writes a song and puts it out there, right? But isn't there some part of him? Don't we want to believe there's some part of him that was like, I'm going to sell 20 million fucking <laughs> You know? I don't know. And I would like to ask Elizabeth, what scene in the book would you really want to be in the movie that wasn't? I was a, a big fan of, um, oh my gosh, her name, is it Madge? The, um, mm-hmm. the girl who gives the, her the, the Yeah, the, the girl mayor's. who actually gives her the pin in the book, the, the, the mayor's daughter, right? That's who that is. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I really liked that the, 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 I liked her as a character, I like that. And she's, she's unfortunately, she's out of the book. <laughs> she didn't make the cut. So I really liked her. But the, it, in general, I would say the movie is very faithful very to the book. Close. I mean, if you've yeah. read the book and you want to see a faithful adaptation, they've worked really hard to keep the, the mood and the tone and almost all the scenes and characters Yeah, do. Dana likes that, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thank you so much for coming out, and uh, come, have a, come have a drink. <laughs>